Listener note, the following podcast contains descriptions of murder that some listeners may find upsetting. Some scenes have been dramatised. About six months later, I had a visit from the police who gave me a cloth cap which belonged to the driver and his pen. They asked me to handle both items to see if I could give them a lead. And I said, Inspector, with respect, this guy could have ran in through that field. He might be hiding in there somewhere. And he basically said, no, get in your van and go to Peter Cooter. If they had been planning to murder someone, then it's quite possible that they wanted to kind of hang around and, and watch and see kind of how that investigation was then unfolding. In 2021, we had the most significant development uh, that we've ever heard about. The information that he has actually has that potential to identify who it is killed George Murdoch. In the previous three episodes, we heard about the night of Thursday 29th of September 1983, when local taxi driver George Murdoch picked up a fare in the West End of Aberdeen. En route to his destination, for some unexplained reason, he took a detour into a dimly lit side street where George's passenger took a cheese wire to his throat, then strangled him to death. There were a couple of young boys who witnessed the murder, and several witnesses came forward with information. But, to the disappointment of the police, these lines of inquiry all reached dead ends. It appears George's killer had just disappeared. When I first started investigating George's murder, I was prepared as much as I could be to hear about his gruesome murder. I was prepared to hear about the shock, the disbelief, trauma and the grief suffered by George's family and friends. I was prepared to hear about a cold case, 40 years later, that remained unsolved. But I was not prepared for this murder to enter the world of the paranormal. Wire Killer, Episode 4, The Premonition. In South Wales, the village of Aberfan lies in the Taff Valley, four miles from the town of Martha Tidfil. In 1869, with the opening of the Martha Vale coal mine, Aberfan went from a village consisting of only two houses and an inn to a village with a population of approximately 5,000 people most of whom were employed in the coal industry. By 1966, 
At the top of Martha Mountain, looming over Aberfan, lay vast piles of waste. Huge waste tips of discarded boiler ash, coal and slurry lay piled high. On the morning of 21st October 1966, after several days of heavy rain, about 40,000 cubic metres of this heavy debris broke away from Martha Mountain and slithered down towards the village of Aberfan. As it continued its menacing descent from the top of the mountain, it quickly gathered momentum and, by the time it reached the village, it was flowing so rapidly that anything or anyone who stood in its way didn't stand a chance. On that morning, a farm, 20 terraced houses and parts of the local and junior senior schools were demolished, all buried under 12 metres of thick mud and rubble. The loss of life was catastrophic. 116 children and 28 adults. The day before the tragedy, Errol Mai Jones, a pupil from Aberfan Junior School, tried to tell her mother about the dream she had the night before. Busy at the time, her mother tried to brush her away, but, undeterred, the ten-year-old insisted for her mum to listen and was reported to have said, No, mummy, you must listen. I dreamt I went to school, and there was no school. Something black had come down all over it. Her mother obviously thought nothing of it. The day after, Errol Mai Jones was killed, when part of her primary school was besieged in the black debris from Martha Mountain. She was 10 years old. Her dream, it seemed, had become a reality. Over the years, there have been many examples of possible premonitions, also known as precognitions. Train crashes, a department store fire, an assassination, even the sinking of the Titanic have all said to have been predicted in advance of the event, in what can only be described as an apparition of the future. Dr. Peter McHugh is a renowned expert in this field. I met with him via a video call. He wears thick black rimmed glasses, is bald, with grey hair around the side of his head. I'm a retired clinical psychologist. I worked in the health service for years in both England and Scotland, dealing with predominantly adults with mental health problems. And I've had a long-standing interest in paranormal phenomena. And I've written some books on the subject and very numerous articles and so on, and, and looked into certain cases. And so that's been a sort of a fairly strong interest. The job wasn't primarily in relation to paranormal phenomena, although some of the patients did report interesting experiences. I can tell that Dr McHugh is both passionate and very experienced within his field of expertise, and immediately I trust him. I started by asking Dr McHugh, what exactly is a precognition? It's a term used in parapsychology, psychological research, to referring to acquisition of information about the future by a seemingly paranormal means. 
for instance, if you have a, a very, viv very vivid dream about a, a, an accident occurring at a local site, and then two or three days later, say, it turns out that that happens, it, that could be seen as, as an example of precognition. Normally, of course, you can, you can guess the future with some events because it, of prob probabilities and so on. But para, the, the precognition would be a term used to describe an experience which seems to uncannily uh, reflect what's happening in, ahead in time. After the Aberfan disaster, early 60s or something, in, in Wales, where a slag heap uh, slid onto a school and killed quite a lot of people, um, Various people, I think, came forward saying they had had very vivid dreams, you know, that seemed to perhaps, you know, it was precognition of the event. A patient of mine, actually, um, who'd had a, a precognitive experience which seemed to anticipate the death of, of, of a relative. It's not hard to find reports of, of supposed precognition. There are also reports of people having experiences where they seem to find themselves back in time, you know, experiencing things as they once were briefly. A case I looked into um, some years ago was near Loch Ashy in the Highlands, near Inverness. And there, there had been reports going back for some long time, actually, of uh, people seeing apparitional warriors in the area. And um, I mentioned the case briefly, I think, in an article in the, uh, the Scots magazine, and a woman from living in England, but who was, had been brought up in Inverness, a Dr. June Barnes wrote to me and she told me of an experience when she called in at her parents' sweet shop in Tom Nahurik Street in Aberdeen, in, in, sorry, in Inverness, one lunchtime, um, and her father was engaged in conversation with a shepherd who was asking her father whether there was any history of any battles being fought in the vicinity. And he told, he, he, he related, that uh, he'd, uh, he'd been minding his sheep at Loch Ashy and a sort of mist had come down. And then he'd seen scruffily, you know, scruffy looking warriors advancing towards the sound of a battle. And time passed, he didn't, the man didn't know how long it was, as a call, but eventually the vision cleared and everything returned to normal. It could be that he'd had a sort of apparitional experience that related to the future, the past, some distant past. That, that, that's an example of possible retrocognition or seeing, you know, having an experience of the past. He then goes on to tell me about a case of precognition, much more relevant to the murder of George Murdoch, an individual in Aberdeen, five weeks before the murder of George, had a premonition about the murder of a local taxi driver. At the time, Dr McHugh documented this case with an article in the paranormal journal, the PSI Report, which he read to me. Brian Parry, pseudonym, who features in this case, wrote to me about it in December 2000. In 1983, Aberdeen-based Mr Parry, then aged about 63 or 64, turned on his car radio and heard, and I've put heard in inverted commas for obvious reasons, on the 8am news, details concerning the murder of a taxi driver on the western outskirts of Aberdeen. It's 8 o'clock. Good morning. Grampian Police has launched a murder inquiry. A local taxi driver was found last night, badly injured on Pitfoddle Station Road, and later died from his injuries. 
His family have been informed, but police have yet to release his name. Detectives at Grampian Police have asked anyone who was in the vicinity of Pitfoddle Station Road last night at about 8.45pm to please come forward with information. They are especially interested to talk to someone seen in the area at around the time of the attack. He is described as 20 to 30 years old, 5 feet 7 inches, thin, with short dark hair, clean shaven and wearing dark clothing. If anyone saw this man yesterday evening running from Pitfoddle Station Road towards Aberdeen, then Grampian Police ask that you call their investigation... He mentioned the murder to two technicians at his workplace, but they said that they hadn't heard about it. When he returned home, he expected to read about the murder in the Evening Express, but there was no mention of it. Morning, guys. Morning, Brian. What a horrible day. Yeah, it's miserable. I'm just boiling the kettle. Fancy a cuppa? Oh, yes, please. I saw full news about that murder last night, eh? Murder? What murder? A taxi driver, I think they said. I've heard now about a murder, mate. Me either. Were you not listening to the local news this morning on the radio? Yeah, I was. It was full of usual doom and gloom, but nothing about a murder, Brian. I would definitely have remembered that. Oh. That's strange. I'll need to check the paper when it comes out this afternoon. Get that done, you Brian. That'll sort you out. Dave, still want to go to the footy game this weekend? Yeah, definitely, mate. I reckon it's going to be a good one. Five weeks later, and I quote from Mr Parry, Aberdeen woke to the news of a taxi driver being murdered exactly as I had told the two technicians. About six months later, I had a visit from the police who gave me a cloth cap, which belonged to the driver, and his pen. They asked me to handle both items to see if I could give them a lead. I could not help in that respect. Mr. Parry's wife informed me that her husband had told her of his experience prior to the actual murder. If he and his wife have remembered the sequence of events correctly, that is, if his experience of hearing the, the, radio, the radio news item preceded the actual murder, this would appear to be a case of precognition. And if, if, we, if we take it literally and at face value and, it, and, and assume it was precognition, the hearing of the, um, of the, the news, the, the radio report was presumably either a hallucination um, or a, a sort of false memory created in his mind to enable him to access that sort of information. And the information about the, the hearing about the murder, I, th I think one could say, if it, again, if it's genuine precognition, it may be that Mr. Parry, Parry's mind didn't directly see the future event, but he, it rather it anticipated his own experience as it would be several weeks later when he heard about the murder. And in the case of George Murdoch's murder, if this experience by, reported by uh, Brian Parry really occurred as he described it, it you could see that as, as an instance of precognition. He seemed to have foreknowledge of a dramatic event, which he wouldn't have been expected to infer by any kind of normal guesswork. As you've listened to the recollection of Dr McHugh, you'll no doubt fall into one of two camps. Someone who believes in the world of the paranormal, or someone who does not. Or perhaps you fall into another camp, the one I find myself in, 
somewhere in the middle of these two points of view, wanting to believe, but perplexed by these alleged exceptional experiences. However, whichever side of this debate you fall into, one thing we can agree on is that the police took this serious enough to go and speak to the individual who claimed to have had this premonition and even brought some of George's belongings in the hope that he may be able to see something that could have helped them make progress with their inquiry. If premonitions are real, what is their purpose? Why would an ordinary individual be given a window into the future? And not just a generic window, but one that showed a premonition of a very specific event. Is it an opportunity for this person channeling this flash into the future to help change the course of this event? Could 10-year-old Errol Mai Jones in 1966 have alerted the authorities? And would it have possibly spooked people enough to have evacuated the village so they could have escaped this deadly disaster? And could Mr. Parry have warned taxi drivers of this possible threat so they became more vigilant? It's a question that I put to Dr. McHugh. That's an interesting question. I mean, there are reports where people have had sort of seemingly precognitive experiences and have actually been able to maybe take some sort of avoiding action. Uh, in this case, I can't recall his mentioning anything like that, you know, whether he thought he should inform the police that I've just had this experience. Maybe at the time, if you believe that you've heard a, a radio report that couldn't, couldn't have happened, you might be wary about telling anyone lest they think you're going nuts or something. <laughs> and maybe he, he, he felt there wasn't much he could do about it or didn't know what to do about it. He did have at least one other paranormal experience in his life. And it seems that, that people who have paranormal experiences, if, you, if, if people report these experiences, you sometimes find that they've actually had other experiences. So some people seem to be a bit more attuned or, or susceptible uh, to paranormal experiences. Although the, the hardline skeptics, of course, would say that these people are perhaps fantasy-prone personalities and people who don't remember things accurately and are over-imaginative. The murder of George Murdoch is obviously a tragedy that still hangs over Aberdeen like a mysterious question mark. But this piece of the puzzle, that someone alleged to foresee the murder taking place, five weeks ahead of the incident does add an extra layer of intrigue to this cold case. And 40 years later, this is what it remains, a cold case. However, with developments in recent years, is it possible that police are getting closer to once and for all discovering the identity of the cheesewire killer? Before retiring from Police Scotland, Gary Winter headed up the inquiry into the death of George Murdoch and knows only too well the challenges of cold cases, as well as what is going to eventually help solve this case. They go through phases, um, investigations in terms of they're obviously very active for a while and then over a long period of time, probably the size of the inquiry team will diminish as 
I suppose as you work through most of the actions that are generated, you know, you go and see a witness and that maybe creates another couple of witnesses to go and see to confirm things. But once you've exhausted all of that, and if you've exhausted the other side of it, the forensic side of it, then you have a sort of lull in the investigation whereby you're really waiting for something new to, to come in to, you know, whether it be somebody giving a story away, having been in custody or through, you know, a, an old fashioned police informant, something like that, giving you a bit of a head start or somebody walking in off the street occasionally and, and admitting to the crime over time you know you get little bits of information and, and small pieces of work are done but to launch a full reinvestigation you know requires a level of commitment that, that that it's difficult to commit to for every outstanding unsolved murder inquiry they tended to certainly at the start of police scotland in in, in 2013 they had a look at what are the cold cases that are the most likely to be resolved. In George Murdoch's case, you don't have a suspect, but equally, they all deserve time and effort when time and effort is available from gaps in current live murder investigations to have a look at. And certainly about five years ago now, we did an appeal for the 35th anniversary. And again, it's what I would say about George Murdoch's murder is that there's probably... I can't remember another inquiry that produces the same consistency of information coming into the police at all times of the year, sometimes on the back of appeals or anniversaries or something that, you know, a newspaper will generate. But other times, it's just random times that, that people will offload information uh, about, you know, what's colloquially referred to as the cheese wire killer. So that's a positive thing that there are stories out in the community about who could have been responsible and it's just a case of, you know, the police trying to make sure you've captured all of those, have a look at them, and then try to carry out elimination inquiries on those that are identified as being responsible. And thereafter, reviewing the material that you have, did that individual feature in 1983? And if so, what was said then? And, you know, is there anything you can do with new information that may change that person's status initially to a suspect and then moving it on to try to get enough evidence to present them at court as an accused? This podcast can be very, very helpful in terms of members of the public who are sitting on stories, might have heard through their family, probably assuming that the police maybe already know it. Well, you know, it's a phrase I often use, which is police only know what they're told. If you've sitting there with information that you think you may know who the killer is and you're assuming that the police already know that, it could be that they don't. So just pick up the phone uh, and pass on that information and it can be very quickly checked against thousands of people that have been spoken to previously or, or names that have cropped up in the past. After the murder of her husband, her family watched on as Jess's health deteriorated. Robina is married to Alex Mackay, George's nephew. Jessie would have probably been about seven and a half to eight stones and normally. Um, her, her weight plummeted too. It was something like between five and a half to six stone. I mean, that is almost skeletal. Um, so she, she lost an awful, awful lot of weight. And in the ensuing years, not maybe right away, but as time went on, um, she did have a series of, of, of um, slight strokes. Um, and also towards the end of her life, um, a lot of chest infections. But, but these mini strokes were becoming more severe as time went on. And she did have a lot of stays in hospital um, in, in the last maybe couple of years of her life. After a string of strokes and health scares, almost 21 years after the murder of George, on the 24th of March 2004, 
as a result of having pneumonia and suffering a stroke. Jesse Murdoch passed away peacefully in hospital. She passed away without closure, nor seeing her husband's killer ever brought to justice. She was 76 years old. In 2014, Robina and Alex, after living and working in the USA for several years, returned home to Aberdeen as they approached retirement age. With more time on their hands, it was then that they decided to launch an appeal to finally bring closure for the memories of George and Jesse. Since then, the couple have worked tirelessly to bring the killer to justice. They started to work closely with Police Scotland. They launched a social media campaign page and Robina even wrote a book. And the only thing that I personally knew I could do, but I I decided I would do, was um, I could maybe just write something, you know, just put something into into words. Ideally, the plan was um, just about the good life that Jesse and Dodd shared together before this tragedy. Um, speak about the tragedy a little bit, but mostly just about them, who they were as people, just what we've been discussing here, in the hope that it might resonate with just that one person or that few people who absolutely know who did this, um, but still have never came forward. My hope was, I'm sure they're decent people, even though they may be connected with a killer, and I thought maybe, just maybe, it'll encourage them to to come forward, you know, say, I think it's so-and-so, um, we... we you know, we, we don't feel right staying quiet and um, somebody lost his life needlessly and we wanted to come forward. So that was my, my thoughts at the time. In 2015, Alex and Rubina donated a £10,000 reward to the appeal, hoping that a reward of this amount may just entice someone to come forward with information. The final piece of the jigsaw. Then, in 2021, a local newspaper doubled the reward. Here's journalist Ewan Cameron from the Press and Journal. We knew that the anniversary was coming up. I just recently become the Crime and Courts editor. Because of how well known the crime was in Aberdeen, we decided to do an investigation into it. The purpose of it was really just bring it to the public's attention again. There had, although there was occasional stories over the years, it was the first time that we'd gone into it for a long, long time. We knew that the police were, you know, it was a cold case that the police were kind of actively working on. But uh, it, so it was really just, it was really just reminding the public about the, the details of the case, going back through our own archives, retelling the story again. And we decided to, to try and, you know, hopefully move the case forward a little bit. Uh, and to give it a little bit more, a bit more juice, I suppose you could say. Someone out there knows who did it, you know, and it was probably quite a young man who did it, who's now probably in his 60s, and I was hoping that perhaps by doubling the reward from 10,000 to 20,000, all it takes is that key bit of information that maybe sets the police down that, that path because it's such an unusual case. If, I think if it happened today, it would be solved. I think it's just because of the time it happened, 1983, the, techno- the, the DNA technology wasn't, wasn't around then, and the mobile phone technology, you know, you couldn't get away with a murder like that these days. Following this, 
local taxi company Rainbow City Taxis donated a £5,000 contribution towards the fund, which brought the total reward to £25,000. It was then that Alex and Rubina decided to double the reward and donate a further £25,000 of their own money. This means that the reward now stands at a total of £50,000. In episode 1, we heard about retired police dog handler Alan Hendry, the first officer to arrive at the scene of George's attack. We heard how Alan secured the crime scene and sat with George, comforting him, until the paramedics took him to hospital. But what we didn't hear in episode one was Alan's recollection of what happened after the paramedics left the crime scene with George. In recent years, Alan has come forward and told the press that he has reservations about the handling of the initial police search. The, the duty inspector, he had turned up at the locus. I said, whoever did this has obviously ran away. And according to the people at the top of the road, whoever did it didn't come up this way. So he didn't come down our way because we came uphill. So he either ran in through the gate, which took you into a house which is adjacent to the murder scene, or alternatively on the other side of the road, there was a, a, an open gateway which took you into a, a field which was uncultivated, the long grass in it. And I thought, I bet he's ran down in there. So I said to the inspector, look, I think I should get my dog out and go and do a search of the field there. And uh, he said, that's, that's, that's not your problem. You, you, you take your dog in the van and go to Peter Cooter onto the railway line and walk your way back here along the railway line in case the perpetrators ran along there. And I said, Inspector, with respect, this guy could have ran in through that field. He might be hiding in there somewhere. That would be a good idea for me to go and search in there. And he basically said, no, get in your van and go to Peter Cooter. Because of the regime and the police, I had no option really but to carry out a lawful order, which I did, and I went away to Peter Cooter. And I walked back along the railway line and never saw a soul all the way back. I went home, uh, I soaked his skin, got myself changed, had a quick shower, had a sleep for about a couple of hours, and then went straight back out to the locus of the murder again. First thing in the morning, before, just before first light, actually, I decided to go and have a look in the field opposite where the murder had taken place. I stuck my dog into a harness onto his tracking lead and had a quick look around about the field. My dog suddenly darted in behind the embankment and the grass was all dead because of the time of year and it was actually quite tall. And when he tracked up to the back of this embankment, lo and behold, here's a, a great big uh, bit behind the embankment, all flattened down as though someone or something had been lying there and has always been during my 25 years, I've attended quite a few murder scenes and I've seen things happen that have been quite horrific. But this one in particular, uh, you know, relating to, to George's murder, it, it was an obvious brutal attack and a horrific brutal attack at that. And it's always been in my, in my mind for over 40 years. And what's really upset me about it is I feel that I could have found the guy responsible and wasn't afforded the opportunity to do that. So that's why that one in particular lives with me forever. So, is it possible that George's murderer lay hiding just metres from where George had been attacked?
was he lying low, watching the activity around the murder scene, as the police launched their manhunt. Helen Hart is a chartered forensic psychologist and offers her professional opinion. If that person was a psychopath or if that person had been planning to commit a murder, not necessarily that murder with George, but if they'd had been planning to murder someone and they had a script playing out in their heads in terms of what that would look like, then it's quite possible that they wanted to kind of hang around and, and watch and see kind of how um, that investigation was then unfolding, depending on the, um, the type of person who would commit that offence to actually get very involved in the investigation themselves and, you know, to, to want to be interviewed, for example, by the press. Certainly people I've worked with have, have done that in terms of murderers. It must haunt Alan to know that if his superior had given him permission to search the local area that night, as Alan had suggested, that he could have caught the culprit he could have been the person to bring the killer to justice, so that George's widow, Jessie, would have at least seen closure and justice, and would have been able to live the rest of her life not fearful of the killer coming after her. It wouldn't have changed the fact that George was dead, but it may just had made the rest of Jesse's life at least a little bit easier. But whether the killer did hang around at the scene or did run off into the night is something that we may never know. As we heard in episode 3, in 1983, because of the oil and gas industry, Aberdeen was an international oil capital with thousands of people from all over the world travelling in and out of the city on business. For this reason, police have never ruled out that the killer may not be from Aberdeen. In 2022, Police Scotland took this appeal national on the BBC crime show Crime Watch. Detective Inspector James Callender. The Crime Watch side of things was really to get it national. Most of the appeals was based in the north of Scotland and there was always a thinking that because Aberdeen is such a multinational city, we attract people from all over because of the oil industry, it probably needed to go national and part of my thinking behind that as well was the, the cheese wire because we know the cheese wire was manufactured in a company down south so that, that there's clearly a link there to England. So that was the, the, the reason behind it. And it was Crime Watch that approached us to ask us if, if it was something we'd be interested in doing. And of course, we're never going to say no to that. It gave us a, a number of leads down south, which we are still looking into. A couple of people phoned in with names of people that may have information. So that, that, that is still getting looked into and it'll continue to get looked into until we, until we bottom it out. But yeah, it was, it was very successful. Not to the extent that we've managed to obviously identify who's responsible, but it's keeping it in the, the media spotlight, which is important to, to solve this case. Because if we let it run dry, you know, it, it's, it's going to be very difficult for us to, to get that breakthrough. Journalist Brian Rutherford covered the Crime Watch appeal in the local Aberdeen press. We always speak about this murder like uh, it's an Aberdeen murder, but there are potentially international dimensions to this case. 
uh, or at least the answers may lie somewhere else within the UK. So taking it national was a really significant move. In 2022, the SIO went on Crime Watch and BBC One to speak about the case. But what was different about this time was uh, we had a reconstruction. We were watching that horrific tragedy unfold. What was amazing about that broadcast was the programme was still live when three phone calls actually came in. And one of the calls came from as far away as the Midlands of England. It was in 1983, so right at the time of the murder, when it was being investigated, detectives were able to work out that that cheese wire was made by a family-run firm that, when it existed, was based in the Midlands of England. And that particular cheese wire was made for a particular cheese board set. Now that cheese board set was something that was sold far and wide, um, but they're fairly certain that it was never sold in the Aberdeen area. So there is a suggestion that this cheese wire with a relationship to the Midlands of England could mean that whoever's responsible for the murder isn't necessarily from here. In 2022, Police Scotland also released the fact that they were looking for an individual who could have vital information about the identity of George Murdoch's killer. Here's local journalist Brian Rutherford again. In 2021, we had the most significant development uh, that we've ever heard about. On this occasion, there was someone who actually contacted the police off the back of seeing a Press and Journal article. And this man had said to the police that on the 26th of September in 2015, he was in Wilson Sports Bar. He was having a drink with someone else, another man. And this man, during the course of a conversation, had indicated that, that he had information connected with this investigation. These two people were not known to each other. They had just been speaking. There's a photograph of this unidentified man. The man's never been identified, not since 2021. But there is a photograph of him. His head's cut off in the photo, so you can sort of just see his torso. He's pictured wearing an Iron Maiden, the Final Frontier World Tour t-shirt. It's the t-shirt for the Germany part of that tour. We've never seen the photo because it's never been released, but we've seen a replica of the t-shirt that the police have put out there. The man that they're looking for is probably in his 60s or 70s at the moment. He's sort of small, uh, stocky, and he had a local accent. The information that he has it actually has that potential to identify who it is who killed George Murdoch. <sighs> Nothing beats a good bite. Aye, yeah. Are you from Aberdeen? I am, born and bred. Aye, I like it here. I lived in London, but it never felt safe there. But in Aberdeen, well, you don't have to worry about getting murdered, do you? Aye, I bet that's what George Murder thought too. Who? Just some, some guy who got murdered in 1983. In Aberdeen? Yeah, he was a taxi driver. And someone took cheese wire to his throat. Good God. He tried to get away, but he didn't get far. And he was strangled. What happened to the murderer? Nothing. What? He got away. And no one ever found him. Been on the run ever since. You seem to know an awful lot about it. Uh, uh, no, not, not really. Anyway, I've got to go. Oh, OK. Bye then. Yeah, bye. Detective Inspector James Callender. That did get a lot of calls coming in. Some people have been named but they've all, in essence, been, been eliminated. Yeah, there is still a, a couple of inquiries that we're, we're needing to carry out, but uh, at the moment we haven't identified who the, the wearer of the Iron Maiden t-shirt was. So, 
with several ongoing appeals and lines of inquiry, an appearance on national TV show Crime Watch, and now the police were also looking for an unidentified man who appeared to have vital information about the murder. Were the police finally closing in on identifying George's killer? When I first started producing this podcast in March 2023, there was one thing that I couldn't have foreseen, nor did I ever expect. And that was, whilst I investigated this murder from 40 years ago, Police Scotland would announce the biggest step forward in this cold case investigation. Coming up in the fifth and final episode of Who is the Cheesewire Killer? It's a huge step forward for us. It's the most significant you know, step forward we've had in this case for 40 years. Back in the early 2000s, I was the first scientist of the sort of modern era, if you like, to open up these items that had been stored by the police since the time of the crime. They interviewed 10,000 people. That person's probably in the pool, the needle in the haystack, if you like, but they're in there. As we do develop and progress our technologies over the years, we can now revisit these items and continue to do work with them. Police Scotland hold a DNA profile and we believe that DNA profile to be that of the killer. If you have any information about what may have happened to George Murdoch on the night of 29th September 1983, please do get in touch. A £50,000 reward remains for any information that successfully leads to the identity of the killer. You can private message the George Murdoch Facebook page. Search for Appeal. For information, Aberdeen Taxi Driver 1983 George Murdoch on Facebook. You can email jdhallfield at mail.co.uk or you can call Police Scotland on 101, all of which you can do anonymously. Also, please rate, share and tell people about this podcast. The more people who hear this story, the better chance we have of finally bringing George Murdoch's killer to justice. You've been listening to Who is the Cheesewire Killer? Written, produced, edited and presented by me, Ryan Ogilvie. Mixed by Christopher MacDonald. Dramatic scenes were produced by Leanne Colston, Rory O'Shea and Steve Henderson. Actors included Angela Duguid, Ben Barclay, Daniel Warren, Guillaume Potter, Jenny Dunbar, Kenny Blythe, Kenny Luke, Martin Barclay-Bell, Oliver Johnston and Steve Henderson. Music from New Noise Audio and Soundstripe. Studio facilities were provided by Original 106. This is a Mind the Gap creative production. (laughs) 